wait, aren't there any more announcements? <laughs> I was kind of hoping there'd be more announcements. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. Sort of. It's been a minute since I've been up here to speak, pre-COVID. So let me tell you, you're in for a treat. <laughs> I don't know how my body can be so sweaty and my mouth so dry at the same time, but here we are. <laughs> And I have water just in case, so please forgive me. But I do believe that the Lord has a good word for us today, so I just want to pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So, Father, we dedicate this time to you. We dedicate um, our lives. Lord, we, we just pause for a second and consciously make the decision to hear and listen and see what you're doing. We give you our hearts and our minds. May your truth be spoken today. May we hear it. Write it on our hearts, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us recently, you know we've started a new series called Hope in the Midst of Fear. And on Easter Sunday, Johnny taught us that through his resurrection, Jesus offers us hope for the future as well as hope from the future, right? Hope for the future in that we get to spend eternity with Jesus. Our, our bodies and souls get to be resurrected and spend eternity with him. And then hope, hope from the future in that he brought God's kingdom to earth, right? In his book, Hope in Times of Fear, Tim Keller put it this way, the resurrection was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be. Since humanity turned away from God, both the human and natural worlds have been dominated by sin and evil, disorder and disease, suffering and death. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated the first stage of the coming of God's kingdom power into the world to restore and heal all things. So we live in the already and the not yet, right? We believe that the kingdom of God has come with the coming of Jesus, but not yet fully. The already but the not yet holds that believers are actively taking a part in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom won't reach its full expression until sometime in the future when Jesus returns. We are already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see it in its full glory. So we live in this tension, awaiting the day when God will consummate this relationship and bring his kingdom to earth fully. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, the message kind of puts it this way. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, We've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And that future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. And the day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. But for now, we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. And then last week, we learned about having hope during difficult times. We learned that when Jesus came as the suffering Messiah, he came in a way that reversed the values of the world, the great reversal. He came in weakness and service, not strength and, and force, not to gain power over the world, but to lay his life down for it. We actually receive salvation through the weakness of repentance. 
We live and grow in this kingdom not by taking power, but by giving it up in order to forgive, to sacrifice and serve. And we learn that we can have hope in the midst of our suffering because God is the God of the great reversal. He brings life out of death, resurrection out of crucifixion. He makes the last to be first and the first to be last. The great reversal shows us that great things come through hard things. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 shows us, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. We must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can have hope in times of fear. We can have hope for the future. We get hope from the future. We have hope in times of suffering. But what about, what about hope now for us here what about hope for personal transformation? Wouldn't life be a little easier if we had this? Looking for the perfect gift for the believer on your list this holiday season? Alexa, what's the weather? The sun is raining. Say hello to Christian Alexa, the believer's alternative to the Amazon Echo. Alexa, play Kanye West. How about Matthew West? Now everything you love about the Echo, except super Christian. Alexa, text Vanessa, can't wait to see you soon, kissy face emoji. Is that really guarding her heart? With advanced situational recognition, Christian Alexa is here to encourage. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Always wanted to be a better Christian? Well, now you can with Christian Alexa. Ah, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And each Christian Alexa is uniquely programmed to help you with your individual struggles. Hey, you want something to drink? That better be a Coke bottle. Order your Christian Alexa today and begin seeing immediate life improvements. Let's eat. How about let's pray? From the makers of Pure Flix and GodTube comes Christian Alexa. Alexa, play Game of Thrones. Are you sure you should be watching that? Give the gift of Christian Alexa and have a happy holiday. You mean Merry Christmas? You know, let's just not even worry about You know what? Let's just listen to some music. You want to do that? Yeah. Alexa, play a song to set the mood. How about I call your accountability partner? Okay, you know what? All right. Christian Alexa. Now available at Family Bookstore. <laughs> Seriously, wouldn't living a transformed life be so much easier with one of these? Question. Do you know how many Mondays I've started something over? I, I seriously bet that I start something over at least <laughs> 45 to 48 Mondays out of the year. But I'm probably not the only one. So show of hands, who here today has already thought tomorrow? Tomorrow I'm going to start this over. I'm going to diet, exercise, devotions, go to bed earlier, be less critical, don't yell at other drivers, no negative self-talk, being more focused, getting to work on time, whatever. And I seriously am starting over tomorrow, so 
I'm not lying. <laughs> so, and whether you're a Jesus follower today or not, I feel like most of us have a desire to be better humans, right? To experience lasting transformation, to not be triggered so often, to not respond in anger, to stop the negative self-talk, to be able to work through depression or anxiety, to drop addictions, to be consistent and present in relationships, to be less self-centered. I could really go on and on. And I think part of the problem of us not experiencing personal transformation could be due to the fact that we form our identities outside of the love of Christ. And any time a false identity is threatened, brokenness and hostility and anger and insecurities follow. If our identities are based on our performance or our race or culture or family name or uh, achievements or economic status, if anything but the love of God is what fuels our self-worth, then any time our identity is challenged, we'll crumble. And the change that we so desperately seek takes two step backs again. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord says, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me the fountain of living hope, of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Anytime we're looking for personal transformation outside of the love of Christ, we're basically digging empty wells. We're digging in dry dirt, looking for life-saving water. So how do we find hope for personal transformation? The Greek word in the Bible for hope, and I should have asked somebody how to pronounce this, so I apologize if, you're, if you speak Greek and you know that I'm saying this wrong. But the Greek word for hope um, is elpida. And in the, in the Bible, whenever that word is used, our word for hope doesn't quite do it justice. If we actually translated it more um, precisely, it would mean profound certainty. Our word in the Greek for hope means profound certainty. So knowing that, I guess the question today is how do we have profound certainty that personal change, personal transformation is possible? Well, to answer that question, since you asked, I want us to turn to scripture. Because at the Vineyard, we believe that the Bible is our final authority in all matters of life and practice. And our desire is to know the Bible, to do what it says, and to experience the way of life it describes. So naturally, this is where we go for answers. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21, starting at verse 1, if you want to get that ready. Um, but first, I'm going to give us a little background so we can understand what's going on in this passage. Um, it takes place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's not the first time that the disciples have seen Jesus since he was raised from the dead. And in order to get the full picture of what's happening, I need to give us another little piece of background um, just surrounding the apostle Peter. Um, prior to the crucifixion, he he wasn't one to stand in the shadows, right? He was, he was the disciple who had loudly and boldly boasted that, that he loved Jesus the most, that he would never deny or abandon Jesus, even if all the others did, even if it meant imprisonment or death. Peter, rather than basing his identity on Jesus's great love for him, based his identity on his great love for Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, 
Peter became violent and cut off one of the ears of, of one of the guards, pretty much the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do, right? So there Peter was again showing his heart, showing that he was looking for his identity to be out of like being the best, the most loyal disciple, uh, basing his self-worth and transformation on his own strength and accomplishments. Then Jesus, after he was taken, um, he was arrested and taken before the council to be accused, um, the other disciples fled. But the Bible tells us that Peter followed at a distance. And Peter ended up in the courtyard of the high priest, just waiting to hear what was going to happen to Jesus. And Peter was warming himself by a fire. Three times he was approached and asked if he was one of Jesus's disciples. He had three opportunities to identify himself as a follower of Jesus, to pledge his allegiance to his Lord. But Peter denied even knowing Jesus each time. You were one of them. You were, you were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. I don't know what you're talking about. No, this man, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. I don't even know the man. We can tell you're one of them. We can tell by your accent. But then Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't even know the man. And after Jesus' death and burial, Peter hid away in fear, just like everyone else. Talk about needing hope. Talk about needing hope for personal transformation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having boasted so greatly about being the best follower? Can you imagine having sworn allegiance to him to the death? Can you imagine having watched him lavishly love and heal and restore? Can you imagine having had him wash your feet? Can you imagine having watched him be brutally mutilated, mocked, and murdered? Can you then imagine facing him again after denying that you even knew him? Can you imagine the level of guilt and shame as you look at him face to face? But that's exactly what needs to happen because encountering the res resurrected Lord is what changes us. It's the only hope we have for personal transformation. And that's what we're going to see here in the scripture. So let's look at John chapter 21, starting at verse 1. And I'm taking a drink. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, friends, you haven't caught any fish, have you? No, they replied. Then he said, Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, basically something we can't identify with today. 
or maybe shouldn't, <laughs> jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards away. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So in this passage, we find the disciples in Galilee, and we know that from reading the book of Mark, um, that Jesus had instructed the disciples to go to Galilee ahead of him. He said, go there, I'll meet you there. What we don't know is why they were fishing. Were they trying to occupy time while they waited on Jesus? Did they need money? Uh, were they just trying to do something familiar in unfamiliar times? Regardless, seven of them decided to go fishing. And since nighttime was the best time to go, that's when they went. They fished overnight, but they didn't catch anything. In the morning, a man on the shore called out. He asked if they'd caught anything. They said no. He said, throw your nets to the right side of the boat. They did, and they caught a ton of fish. Does this sound familiar? Because it is. And something must have clicked at this point because John said to Peter, it's the Lord. This, this was familiar. This had happened before. Peter, James, and John were actually called to follow Jesus in a very similar setting. Luke 5 tells us that in the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was preaching on the shores of Galilee, but the crowd was getting so big and pressing in that he needed to find a better place from which to preach. So he looked around, he saw a couple of empty boats, he saw the fishermen there washing their empty nets, and he asked if he could sit on the boat, push out a little bit into the water so the, and preach from there so the people could see him and hear him. And the fishermen agreed, and so that's what happened. Jesus sat in the boat, went out into the water a little bit and preached from there. After he had finished preaching, Jesus said to Peter, let's take the boat out a little farther. You can throw your nets in and catch some fish. But remember, Peter, James, and John had already been out all night. These were professional fishermen. They had done what they'd known to do, and they caught nothing. But for some reason, Peter did what Jesus asked, he took the boat out into deeper waters, cast his net out, and caught so much fish that he filled and almost sank two boats. During this time, when Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees this first time at the Sea of Galilee. He fell to his knees and he said, Lord, 
please leave me. I'm too sinful of a man. You, you can't be around me. But Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And then Luke 5.11 tells us that as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, in, in the scripture that we just read in this setting, after the resurrection, we find Peter, James, and John, along with four other disciples in a very similar situation. And John's the one that recognizes it. It's the Lord. But this time, instead of Peter begging Jesus to leave him because he's a sinful man, he does the exact opposite. And he does his best to get to Jesus as fast as possible. He wants to be as close to him as he can, as quickly as he can. He jumps out of the boat and struggles to shore because encountering the resurrected Lord is what changes us. It's the only hope we have for personal transformation. So Peter makes it to shore. They take care of unloading the fish and find that Jesus has breakfast by the fire for them. But the last time we knew about Peter being at a fire, there was no breakfast being served by Jesus, was there? Let's read verses 15 through 17 again. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I kind of imagine him gesturing to the other disciples. Because remember, Peter claimed that before. Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him this a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Encountering the resurrected Lord is what changes us, right? It's the only hope we have for personal transformation. I really love how Jesus was so gentle and personal and purposeful with Peter during this interaction, the last one that we just talked about here by the Sea of Galilee. He didn't condemn Peter. Rather, he resurrected the calling on Peter's life. He removed his guilt, and he restored Peter into a right relationship with himself. Jesus brought Peter back to Galilee, where he had first called him to follow, and where Peter had first said yes to Jesus. Jesus reminded Peter of all the ways he had been faithful to Peter by recalling the miracle of the fish. And then Jesus brought Peter back to the fire. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A question for each denial. Worldly values make us believe that our identity in Christ is based on our good works, our moral living, our, our rituals, our performance, that personal transformation is ours to attain by working hard enough and being strong enough and doing all the good things, and that by doing all the right things, we can, we can transform our own lives and, and make God love us. But we're living in the great reversal. Our personal transformation doesn't come from our ascending to God, but because God descends to us. And Peter finally gets it. I love you. I love you. I love you. 
No excuses. He's not defensive. He's not trying to atone for his own sins. He's not trying to make up for anything or talk about how unworthy he is. No more, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Peter has godly sorrow here. Worldly sorrow, we're sorry about the consequences of our sin for our own sake. But in godly sorrow, we're sorry about our sin itself because of the way it affects our Creator, our Redeemer, the way it hurts Him. Tim Keller, in the book I've been referencing, says, true repentance is fueled by grief for hurting the one we love. And that intensified love of Christ makes our sin appear hateful. And so they begin to lose their power over us. I believe that Joel said years ago that Jesus met Peter where he was. He helped him process his past. He gave him back his identity and his calling. And that's exactly what Jesus does today. Again, in his book, (laughs) Tim Keller says, Jesus is basically saying something like this to Peter. Your identity was based so much on your own bravery and wisdom and goodness that my love for you seemed like nothing more than wages you earned. But now you've seen your sin and turned to me. Now your failure plunged into my grace and forgiveness will make you a great leader. For who can speak into people's lives better than someone who finally knows their own heart? Who can lead better than someone who is humbled by the grace of God and yet at the same time is affirmed by my free, gracious love? Encountering the resurrected Lord is what changes us. It's the only hope we have for personal transformation. When we encounter the resurrected Jesus, it changes the way we see ourselves and how we see God. When we encounter him like this, Jesus helps like strip off our earthly identities and then helps us put on his godly identity, which is solely based on his great love for us. Once Peter grasped this and stepped into his true identity, he was freed to walk in the hope of continued transformation. He was freed to walk in the profound certainty of his continued transformation. And because he aligned himself with the truth of his identity in Christ, he boldly proclaimed Jesus crucified and resurrected. He he saw thousands of people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and he impacted um, the rest of time, really. I'd like to ask Amber to come up now. Just wanted her to give us a little inside look into what personal transformation can look like today. Hi. Hi, I'm gonna go over here. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, So Andrea just asked me to share uh, just a quick testimony of just where I've experienced this in my life. Um, She's kind of gotten a little bit of a front row seat of some of my transformation because she's the wonderful receiver of five million texts a day. Um, So uh, the way that I've kind of seen this play out in my life really kind of started 10 years ago when Andrew and I first got married. Because for all of you who are married, you know that you're two very different people that come from two very different families and you have this great idea to move in together and your two families are just gonna become a new family. And all of a sudden you're asking things like, why are you the way that you are? Because you don't do anything like what my family does and I don't do anything like your family and surely my family's the right way and your family's the wrong way. So Andrew just started sharing these things with me and giving me feedback like, 
I can't even tell you that the way you make green beans I don't like without you getting defensive. And I started seeing these patterns in my life of where I had a hard time receiving feedback, um, specifically from people I looked up to, whether that was bosses, my parents, um, leadership in the church, particular friends um, that I felt were really special and important to me. And so I went from this place of not even knowing that I had this issue um, to starting to be aware of it. And over time, I started realizing that all of my life, I was actually changing the things that I thought, the things that I felt, the things I said I liked and didn't like, all to be based around what I thought other people wanted me to say, think, feel, like, and not like. And what I realized was that my identity, the thing that I thought that I needed for people to think that I was enough, that I was good enough, um, that I was accepted, that I was approved, um, all of those things in my mind I thought that had to come from other people. And every time someone disapproved of a decision I made, didn't agree with a thought I had, that was a threat to my acceptance and to my approval. So I fast forward into about two years ago, um, I entered a new position at work. I, I transitioned and worked for, um, came to Lancaster City Schools. And um, this seemed completely unrelated to me, but I was in a really difficult situation. Um, I started experiencing some symptoms I'd never felt before. I was having lots of really bad dreams. Um, I was sick a lot. Um, I was having sometimes a hard time like feeling like I couldn't breathe. Um, I didn't feel like getting out of bed someday. And I actually reached out to Andrea and I was like, I don't want to take advantage of Ryan, but I really need to know like if I'm going crazy. And so um, I sat and talked with Ryan. He suggested maybe, maybe you need to start seeing a counselor. And so I started accessing these resources like counseling. Um, and then I went into things like emotionally focused. And wouldn't you believe it that it wasn't my boss that was the problem? It was that same old thing. My counselor started asking me the same questions Andrew started asking me. It sounds like when your boss doesn't agree with you or gives you feedback, you feel threatened like you're not accepted or approved. Like, have you been talking to my husband? That's literally what I thought. So I had to come to terms with this reality that my acceptance and approval and my enoughness could not come from other people because the reality is, is when I started to step into more leadership roles and things that God was calling me to, I don't know if you know this, but like when Jesus asks us to do something for him, he usually is in that radical middle place where you're going to probably offend people on both sides. And so if I was going to do the things that God was calling me to do, I was going to have to no longer get my acceptance and approval from these people around me because I'm going to upset somebody, if not both sides. So that was the work I had to do. And um, it, took a, it takes a lot of work, and it still takes a lot of work. It's not something that we ever arrive at because, like Andrea says, we're in the now and the not yet. And so there are days where I feel like I have a lot of success, and then there are other days where it's like, oh, I've been working on this for so long, and yet I'm still finding myself struggling to try to get approval from other people. Um, but just a couple weeks ago, actually, I had a really great um, experience, and this was kind of what led me to share this with Andrea, and she was like, hey, can you share that when I preach? Um, teachers get this wonderful experience of being evaluated, like twice a year, and it's where you're literally, your boss just comes in, 
and sits and stares at you for 30 minutes. And then she goes through this rubric and gives you a score on how you did on everything. And a lot of the things she doesn't even get to see in that 30 minutes, but she's still gonna score you anyway. And so I knew because of the work that I've been doing that this was a prime trigger experience for me. And that morning I sat on the couch with Andrew with my breakfast and I went through the list of things I needed to know. I need to, this is, gonna, this is probably what emotion I'm gonna experience during this moment. This is the thing I want to remember. This is how I want to show up. This is the thing that's not true. This is the thing that is true. This is the expectation that's realistic. This is the expectation that's not. And I was able to just rattle through that list. I even shared that list with Andrea. And I had this realization on the way to work, like I heard the Lord telling me, and it was probably because it was the week after Easter, but I, I had the Lord, like I just sensed the Lord saying like, you are living in the resurrection power. Like, this is your old self dying and your new self being resurrected. This is my good news of my gospel, that you are dying to your old self and you are stepping into a new level of freedom that I've always, I've always wanted you to have. And so that's the good news of when we encounter Jesus, that we have access to this resurrection life that the Lord promises us. So thanks for letting me share with you this morning. Thanks, Sandra. Church, let's don't become weary as we walk out our personal transformation. It gets super old, though, doesn't it? It's never ending. We're always working on ourselves, always waiting to see change come so slowly, if at all. One definition of the word transformation I found just talks about metamorphosis through a life cycle. This, this transforming work, this personal transformation is a continual process throughout our lifetimes, allowing the Holy Spirit to make us more in the likeness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, though, reminds us that we will not reach Christ's likeness as long as we are living in the not yet. But as we face him and as we move towards him, we automatically reflect his glory. And one day we will finally be fully transformed. But for now, let's see every act of obedience as a little death that leads us into new life, new self-understanding, new levels of trust in God, new levels of, of growth and love and patience and humility and self-control, and most of all, a new intimacy and communion with God. So how do we apply this to our lives? I'm gonna fast forward through this a little bit because we need to jump to ministry time because for some reason, for somebody who doesn't like to talk a lot, here I am. <laughs> there are lots of things we can do outside these four walls, right? Um, quiet time, reading our Bibles and prayer, that's our base, right? But we're also built for community. We're built for life with God and with others. We weren't made to do this on our own. So a big next step for me was finding my people, people who weren't afraid to get in the mess with me, people to whom I can be accountable, people who would ask me the hard questions and bring up hard conversations and let me do the same, people who love Jesus and try to love me like Jesus loves me. When we're walking our journeys on our own, like we're like this. We only see what we see and we only know what we know. So walking together with other people allows other people who love Jesus, who are trustworthy to come alongside us, to challenge us and to encourage growth in us and to speak truth and love and, and to support us. I'll also say that like getting involved 
in this beautiful body um, has really transformed me. If you told me 23 years ago that I would be up here talking, I would have moved away. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ryan, I just would have left. <laughs> For real though, just being involved and being surrounded by people who love and encourage me, who call out giftings and, and just trying new things like volunteering and coming to different services, not just on Sunday, coming to Holy Spirit night or like all church meetings just allows you to like grow and find the, the callings and the giftings that God has placed on your life. And another way to walk this out is to join a small group. Um, small groups are groups of people who are meeting because they want to meet. They take time out of their lives to come together and do life together. So finding the group that works for you is transformational. These are people who are for you. They'll walk with you. Um, they'll encourage you. They'll challenge you <laughs> in lots of ways. When we have lots of small groups here at the Vineyard. We have... Um, Lots of groups throughout the week. You can look on the wall in the lobby to find information, or you can check the website, or even um, download the app. Um, emotionally focused, you've heard a lot about it. I'm gonna skip over that for now. It's a huge program. It focuses on, it's all about transformation. So um, it's, it's wonderful. If you have any questions or you need help, look, just find one of the elders, uh, staff members. There are tons of people here who have participated in emotionally focused. In this moment, <laughs> however, I want to move into ministry time and actually talk to Jesus and ask him about personal transformation. Before we start, I just, when I look around, I think in a room this size on a day like today, there are bound to be people here who, who aren't currently in a relationship with Jesus. And if that's you, in this book, I've really beat to death today. Um, Tim Keller says, the claims of Jesus, if they're truly heard for what they are, never evoke a moderate response. Jesus claimed to be the Lord God of the universe who came to give himself for us so that we could live for him. This is a call to total allegiance. You either have to run away screaming in anger or fear or run toward him with joy and love and fall at his feet and say, I am yours. Nothing in the middle makes any sense. And then I'm going to quote somebody else in their book, um, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist turned Christian theologian. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Christ that is. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're not in a personal relationship, I want to encourage you that the people who are in this room who know Jesus are a thousand percent for you. And as we move into this quick exercise, um, if you're looking for answers, join us in this activity. Encountering the resurrected Lord is what changes us. 
It's our only hope for personal transformation. We all have a little bit of Simon Peter in us today, don't we? We try to be self-sufficient. We try to find our identity in our own strength or performance. We, we overreact or we brag or we, we become anxious or afraid. We can succumb to anger, self-pity, self-loathing, insecurities, jealousies. So I want us all to join Jesus and sit at the fire with him this morning. If we could, let's just close our eyes, everyone. I'm going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to move as he sees fit. Come, Holy Spirit. We know you're already here. We're just giving you permission to speak and change us. Sanctify our imaginations today, Lord. I, I misuse mine all the time, recreating events, worrying about things that haven't happened yet. So I'm asking you right now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us your thoughts, that all other voices would be silenced, and that the eyes of our hearts would be opened. We trust you, Jesus, and we want to be more like you. With our eyes closed, I just want you to imagine this scene with me. A beach. Hear the waves crashing gently. Feel the, the mist on your face. Can you smell the sea air? The sun is coming up and its warmth is beginning to cut the slight morning chill. There's sand between your toes. Ahead, there's a small fire. Hear the crackles? Smell the smoke. As you walk closer, feel the warmth coming off the burning coals. Jesus is here. He's sitting by this fire. He's invited you to breakfast. Nothing about him is unkind. In fact, the more time you're with him, the more at peace you feel. See the love in his eyes as he looks at you and know that in this moment, that he willingly gave up his life for you because of this great love. There's absolutely nothing he would not do out of his perfect love for you. He longs to transform you into his likeness, to free you from the things that keep you from finding your worth and purpose in his love. This is a safe place because Jesus is here. Ask him to show you the areas of your heart that don't look like his. He's gentle, he's kind, he doesn't condemn you, he doesn't shame you. Ask him how he feels about these areas. He's gentle, he's kind, he doesn't condemn you, he doesn't shame you. Ask him to begin transforming these areas. Listen to what he says to you.
Give him your hurts, fears, insecurities, anxieties, bitterness, addictions, pressures, shame, anger, guilt, failures. See him gladly take these things from you. He is gentle and kind. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't shame. What does he give you in return? you that you are never passive but always active on our behalf. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear how you're working in our lives and help us to partner with you. Our hope, our profound certainty is in you. <laughs> 